Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff here with BTK Education Fellow Jessica Millar. Jessica, big question here for you. Do you expect perfection from yourself or something close to it, perhaps? I would love to say I'm perfect, but probably at least something close to it. Yeah, I think probably all surgeons do, though. And to be fair, that's kind of like surgery culture and kind of what we just sort of expect from one another. Yeah. And for good reason. That's what we want for our for our patients and out of ourselves. But perfection, you know, as we all know, that's impossible. For sure. Complications happen. Things happen that are just absolutely outside of our control. And when it does, though, it really hurts. You have a patient that has a poor outcome. You can really take it to heart. I know how bad it feels after a complication. Patrick, what are some of the emotions you feel? Yeah, it's the worst. It honestly uh, feels atrocious. feel guilt, uh, sadness, certainly increased anxiety, and loss of self, self-worth. You know, especially as a surgeon, you spend so much time and energy and you devote yourself to the practice and you've made so many sacrifices and then something has gone wrong uh, under your care. It can absolutely result in loss of that feeling of self-worth. Yeah. And Patrick, I, I think this constellation of symptoms that you perfectly described is what literature and what everybody recently has been talking about as the second victim syndrome. It's actually the phenomenon we're going to talk about today with our special guest, Dr. Haytham Caffarini. Dr. Caffarini, he's an associate professor of surgery at the Harvard Medical School and MGH, and he's the chief patient safety officer of the Joint Commission as well. Yeah. And he's a thought leader when it comes to how surgeons deal with complications. And he's done some amazing things at MGH, which includes starting a program to help surgeons deal with second victim syndrome. I'm so excited to be able to talk to him today. So let's just jump right into it. Here's Dr. Haytham Caffarini on Behind the Knife. So let's maybe spend a few minutes and start off by just talking about what exactly is second victim syndrome. I think that term is used a lot, especially nowadays. And so I think it's really important that we just have a working definition. Um, I know for a lot of us, it's this like constellation of emotions, or at least we've heard that it's these emotions that can occur. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how second victim syndrome kind of impacts the surgeon specifically? Yeah, that, that, that's a, a really good place to start. Uh I mean, almost every surgeon knows to a certain extent that feeling when you realize you just did either a bad mistake or you just got into a a bad complication during surgery. You're in the operating room, there's music in the background, everything is going very well, and that last snip of scissors, just you you get some blood back and, and the whole operating room environment transforms. The music is off. Everybody's tense. There's multiple anesthesiologists coming in. And that feeling that the surgeons get at that point is the beginning of the second victim. And I think at the essence of it is um, we all go to surgery to help patients. And there's a strong bond of trust that happens between the surgeon and her patient. And and when, when we feel we betrayed that trust and harmed the patient, then we get we feel singled out, we feel exposed, and and we agonize over it. We agonize over it in the moment. Sometimes we lose perspective on how to fix it in the moment, but even for days or weeks after it, we we dread the prospect of of um, of the 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 eventual outcome of the patient, and we might become attentive to the patient, overly attentive to the patient and the family. We might beat ourselves very hard for failing to do so earlier. And then also sometimes we fear the repercussions on reputation as well as the medical legal repercussions. 
So the second victim terminology itself uh, was coined in the year 2000 in an um, editorial by Albert Wu, who's a very well-known patient safety expert at Johns Hopkins. And, and he wrote an article called Medical Error, the Second Victim, The Doctor Who Makes the Mistake Needs Help Too. Yeah, and I think that there was a survey done a number of years ago at, at a, a multi, uh, multiple Harvard hospitals that surveyed surgeons on how they deal with complications or how they don't deal with them. And those results are actually stunning just in terms of the sheer number, but also in terms of the responses and the the, the surgeons had kind of pouring their hearts out, right, in terms of how this has affected uh, their lives and that this impacted surgeons who were fresh out of training, but also very senior surgeons. Can you talk to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of my way into this topic. I, I come from a background of research and my first five years out of fellowship, I was mostly uh, fascinated by intraoperative safety, if you want, and um, an intraoperative adverse event. So I wanted to study everything about it. I wanted to see uh, what result what what results in intraoperative adverse event? I wanted to classify by severity. I wanted to see how it affects patients after surgery. And at some point, there was a medical student who wanted to work in my lab, and her name was Kelsey Han. And she she came and she said, "I want to work with you on this topic." I said, "I think I'm out of ideas on what else to study." And she goes, "Well, why don't we study how it impacts surgeons?" And that was brilliant. Um, suggestion by Kelsey, and I always give her credit for it because I, I was very focused on the patient at that point. So that's when we created the idea for the study you're referring to, Patrick, which is uh, the BISA study, the Boston Intraoperative Surgeon's Attitude Study. And that study was a simple one. It actually was not focused on the second victim phenomenon, but that's what the strong thing that came out of it. It was focused on trying to get, uh, it was a survey survey given to all the Harvard teaching hospitals, so Mass General, Brigham, Beth Israel, and Children's. And it had three goals, uh, including, you know, the attitude of surgeons to transparency about intraoperative complications and intraoperative adverse events. But one of them was, um, how does it impact them at an emotional level? And, uh, and that study took a life by itself, because when we got the survey back, we had designed it mostly to be closed-ended items. So Likert scales, one to five, do you agree, do you disagree, to what level do you agree and disagree? But I had left, uh, after every question, the chance if anybody wants to add anything qualitative, write something, some comment to us to have the ability to do so. But what I did not predict is the pages and pages of anonymous, uh, uh, if you want, stories by surgeons who opened their heart to the survey and they were telling us about how they felt when they injured the patient and, and how they felt singled out, how they felt they had no support and how it took them a lot to, to heal. And actually 80, almost 85% of the surgeons reported severe, severe levels of anxiety, guilt, shame, embarrassment, and quite a few of them needed formal psychological uh, help and assistance um, to overcome that phase, and they shared that information with us. Um, the, uh, the, if you want, the, the funny aspect of, of how, how at MGH we came to look at it is Kelsey herself, the same medical student, presented that study at the New England Surgical Society, Society back then. And as I was sitting in the audience and she finished, she did a beautiful job, I get an immediate text from... Dr. Keith Lillimo, who's the chair of surgery at MGH. And the text had a very simple sentence. It says, we need to talk. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> and that was my uh, emotional distress then. You don't want to get your chair to say, we need to talk. I thought he, he will be like, what are you doing airing the dirty laundry of MGH in front of all the other institutions? Sure. To his credit, he... he sat with me, he actually told me his own personal story, which I will not share with you since he was a trainee. Um, and he then challenged me. He said, you know, this is all good. Research is amazing, good topic, but what we should do something about this. So I challenge you to do something about it. 
And, and that's when we I went into that route of studying the second victim more and doing something about it at MGH. Now, I think second victim syndrome is something that all specialties, I think now especially, are kind of talking about. Um, but is there something specific to surgeons or symptoms specific to surgeons or a way that surgeons experience it that's maybe a little bit different than, say, physicians in other specialties that you've found? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Actually, uh, when I went after that incident and tried to do the literature search, I found that, again, the term was coined, uh, the second victim term was coined uh, um, in the year 2000. But I also found quite a few studies, mostly in the nursing literature, but also in the general medical literature and not as much in the surgical literature. So the, 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 the concept of the second victim applies to almost all healthcare workers and can even be extended outside medicine. But your question is really good. Why uh, why are, is it why does it hit home with surgeons? Is there something special in sur- in physicians in general and in surgeons in specific? And I do think that there is something special. First, the intraoperative component of injuries has this um, physical component to it where you actually can cause the harm with your own hand to the patient. So that aspect of physicality of it uh, adds to it a different dimension that I think non-proceduralists do not feel to the same extent. But from a conceptual level, I think there are five things um, that are almost guiding ideals, if you want, of surgeons that help us very well create this culture of surgery that is very helpful for patients. But when something goes wrong, those same five ideals can result in a worse second victim phenomenon. So what are these five guiding ideals? The first one is selflessness. We place the welfare of others above our own welfare as surgeons, but that can result in us not seeking help when we have our own health problems or emotional problems, because our personal and emotional health is never a priority in the way we are brought up. The second one is loyalty. We are committed to accomplishing missions, protecting others. That can lead to guilt and complicated bereavement when we lose patients or we injure patients. Third one is stoicism. We're Mm -hmm. tough. We are taught from our internship how to be able to endure hardships and never complain. That same thing can make us being unaware and not acknowledge when we're suffering and having significant symptoms until they're they're kind of they advance too much. Our moral code is very strong. We follow a, an internal moral compass to choose right over wrong. That can lead us to feel frustrated when things go wrong. And the last one is excellence. I don't know a single surgeon who doesn't aim to be excellent. We all want to be the best, most effective professionals possible, but that leads to severe feelings of of being ashamed and deny or minimize imperfections whenever they happen. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, and what were some of those symptoms that surgeons suffer from the most? You mentioned the guilt, anxiety. What other you know adjectives or symptoms describe second victim syndrome, especially in the heat of the moment after after having a complication? Yeah, there um, there's a wide range of symptoms that surgeons feel whenever they have, and those depend on the severity of the complication that happened. But there is a sadness, there is embarrassment, there is a shame. But actually, a lot of times, if things are severe enough, it can become it become physical symptoms. People can have decrease in appetite, increase in appetite, uh, have trouble sleeping have anxiety, have, uh, you know, panorama. they can have these recurrent thoughts in their, in their minds. I, I don't know if you, you know, I assume you've been involved in some long cases of lysis of adhesions, for example. And I know for myself, when I do these cases of six, seven hours of tedious lysis of adhesions, sometimes that same night, I cannot find myself at night dreaming that I'm still lysing adhesions in the middle of the night. So it can affect your sleep quality, can affect your dreams. You have these recurrent, almost like PT, short-term PTSD. It doesn't necessarily need to be long-term PTSD unless those recurrent images just become hardwired. So, and, and 
Um, those are kind of the immediate things that happen. Um, most surgeons will do one of two things, either avoid seeing that patient because they rem- it, that patient reminds them of their failure or they become overly attentive and, and kind of, you know, do it too much if you right. want. But what I worry about, I do want to mention it. I, I think this is the tip of the iceberg um, of, of the symptoms. I wonder how many surgeons change their practice patterns. Yes and avoid taking care of the next patient with similar symptoms, but we don't put it on this phenomenon. It just goes like somebody just changed their practice from doing the big surgeries to doing the smaller surgeries, or now they send patients too much to IR or GI. And I think that's the price that we also pay for not giving this the attention it needs that is often underappreciated. There's stages of the second victim syndrome that have been described uh, by folks as well, almost like the stages of grief. And there there are six stages that are described. And I'll just whiz through those really quick. But I would uh, want to hear what your thoughts on these and and if this is um, if you believe this is true based on your research. And the first is there's chaos and accident response. So you look at how and why did this happen? Stage two is intrusive reflection. So you're thinking about how did I miss this or how did I let that happen or occur? Stage three is restoring personal integrity. So you think about what others are thinking about you, uh, what the partners might think, et cetera. Stage four is enduring the inquisition. So thinking you might get fired, uh, especially reviewing these in the peer review setting, et cetera. Stage five is obtaining emotional first aid. We often look to our peers for that. And then stage six is moving on. And there are a few different options, which I think is really the most interesting thing. And in, in, in how we deal with this is, do we move on by dropping out, by by withdrawing? Do we simply survive and endure? Or can we thrive and find some silver lining in these in these circumstances? Yeah, no, you, you, you know... I've written enough about the topic, but if the listener wants me to say there's one article they should read, it's the article, not what I wrote, but an article by Scott and colleagues, uh, which actually kind of coined these six stages that clinicians commonly experience following an adverse event, exactly as you stated them. Over and over again in in our uh, work with the peer support, I've seen it in action. I'm not a psychiatrist. I, I will never claim to be a psychiatrist or psychologist. I probably suck at it, to be honest. But those stages are real. And and the how to support your, your colleague, your peer, your friend through such an event, it depends on what stage they are in. If this is fresh, this has just happened, I think one of the first things to make sure, are they able to continue operating, for example? And yeah, some things are, you know, they, 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 you know, they have a small case after it and they, the incident was not a big deal. They can continue. But also sometimes it's the right thing to do to tell the patient, the next patient, that we're canceling your case and we will do this case later on because there's been an issue with the case before mm-hmm. you. And I think most patients will be appreciative of that transparency and will want their surgeon to be in their best form when they're operating on them yeah. versus later on, like the moving on component is the most difficult one because if, if somebody doesn't deal with their emotions in a healthy way early on, then the moving on component could get very tricky. I think you sort of alluded to this, that a lot of us, whether we realize it or not, when these events occur, find comfort and guidance through our peers simply because we have the most experience, we kind of know what it's like. But understanding that this is a big problem that affects a large number of surgeons, what are some formal programs or formal ways to sort of address this throughout institutions or universities? I know you've started one of your own, if you don't mind kind of describing it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's still, it's about six years now, in the making and still a work in progress that continues to evolve. But back then when when, when Dr. Lolomo challenged me to do that, I did look into the literature to see what actually helps. And even from our own visa study, what we found the answers is what helps you the most in those situations 
who was peer support. So we established then a, a second victim peer support program at MGH. And I'm happy to go later if you want me into the technicalities of how it works. But the concept is, is giving support and collegiality to the second victim from somebody who has the ability to say, I've been in your shoes, I know how it feels, and teaching those peer supporters to how to listen, validate, how to support them. And, and that could be tricky for surgeons because naturally all surgeons are doers. Uh, we, we are wired to jump and help. And that's almost the opposite of what you need to do in those situations. Mm-hmm. You need to kind of calm yourself. You need to prevent yourself from jumping to help. What you need to do, listen, acknowledge, do not minimize what happened because that surgeon knows that this is a big deal and just guide them through it. And if you see some flags, elevate the level of support they need to get to a more formal, professional help if you want. You know, again, I'm happy to go into the technicalities of the program, but in general, the three things that we started covering, we call it a walk with coffee, is major intraoperative adverse events or complications, catastrophic patient outcomes that are unexpected, And the third one is um, lawsuits, um, because we also think that's a traumatic event in the life of any surgeon to be sued, especially when they feel, you know, like they they had a trust relationship with the patient. Usually there's a sense of betrayal when that happens. You will be amazed at the acceptance of such a program among surgeons. I personally had my doubts. I am not known to be uh, a touchy-feely guy. I mean, rarely, I always, you know, start with a joke when I give the talk about it. I say, you know, trauma surgeons in general are not known to be touchy-feely and definitely not a, a, a bald Middle Eastern bearded trauma surgeon is not exactly known to be touchy-feely. <laughs> I tend to be allergic to fluff if you want. And I was worried that this is kind of too fluff for me. And I couldn't be more wrong because we definitely hit a very sensitive topic that all surgeons identify with. And two aspects of what we did in the program are very essential for us to talk about, which differentiate differentiate the program from the generic employee assist program or whatever it's called in your institution. These two characteristics are one, that it's it's surgery specific because the same way I do not know how to support a psychiatrist who lost a patient one day after a clinic visit because they missed how suicidal they are, I do not know how it feels. It's the same way a pathologist will never have the credibility to support me in a massive intraoperative bleeding that I caused. So I think that surgery-specific component is important. Now, where do you draw the line? What type of surgery or what type of procedure can other procedures help? That's something to be discussed. The second thing what was a crucial decision when we created the program is we made it an opt-out program. Yeah. What do I mean by that? If you we listen, we're all surgeons here. We know, we know, we know how we're like. If you put a phone there and expect that a surgeon will call you and ask you, listen, I don't feel well, can, you know, can you help me? That phone will never ring. Never ever. So I took the concept like in some states where organ donation is an opt-out, meaning you are an organ donor until you say, I don't want it. It's the same way. So whenever uh, a a, a serious event happens, then normalize that they will get a peer support intervention. And it's the, the, the effort needs to be on that surgeon to say, I do not want it. So it's happening unless they specifically really go out of their way to say, I don't want it. And that was a key element in the success of the program. Do you find that a lot of surgeons do opt out or are they pretty accepting once you do offer them that? So, yeah, that's a really good question. So I I thought it's, it's going to be a lot of opt out and I was wrong again. Um, we did study the when the, when the program um was one year old. We did look at the data of how many interventions. So we had a, a little bit less than 50 interventions because, again, we were not intervening on small things. These are major, major complications. There was 50 attempts and there was, um, I believe there was an 81% opt-in, meaning there was 19% wow. 
percent only who opted out. And that that by the way includes not only surgical attendings but also surgical residents. No, that's super wonderful to hear. I guess my other question is how do you identify when these events occur? Oftentimes I might hear things word of mouth, whispers in the hallways, or they get presented at M&M. So how do you sort of hear about or find out about these events in order then to offer this? Yeah, in, in the design of the program, I spend a lot of time on that specific question. How do I identify? How do I know? And I created a whole list of everything you mentioned. M&M, safety reports, uh, quality directors, um, you, you, you name it, 100% mortality reviews. I created all of them. And in the end, you know, it turns out once the program gets, um, you know, gets some traction, it's word of mouth. Uh, it's, not, it, it's not uncommon for me to hear now about the same event from three or four sources, independent sources that either text me or email me about, say, hey, did you hear what happened to R33? Uh, just make sure the surgeons are doing okay. It could be the anesthesiologists that reach out, could be the nurses, could be other colleagues in surgery, could be the chair, could be the quality director division, you name it. And it's so once it becomes part of the culture of the department, you will know, even if you are as big an institution as Michigan, North Carolina, or Mass General. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Yeah, so let's dig in a little bit more on the specifics. Let's say someone who's listening is intrigued, uh, as I think most people will be, and maybe they want to try to start it at their institution. What are obviously we're, we don't have time to go into all the details, but what are some of the higher level uh, components to this program that you have found work well and are key uh, to their success? We've already touched on a few. Yeah, I um, the, the good news for for the readers who are re- or the listeners who are really interested, you know, we kind of published in a lot of transparency and details exactly how we created the program to the level of details that it's almost like a white paper of how to do it. But in in a nutshell, it's five steps. The first one is is you need to um, create a conceptual framework. What what do I mean by a conceptual framework? Kind of put your finger on the pulse of the culture in the department and create, if you want, the, the urgency that this is a problem. We all agree on it. Something needs to happen. The second aspect of it is how do you protect this from from legal discovery if you want and and also where do you place it within an organization that already has other things that support people in similar situations and not necessarily surgeon. So the conceptual framework, think about it like like a pyramid or a triangle. The, The bottom part of that pyramid is the hallway discussions, the unit support that you already get. It's, it's, you know, it's the social capital within our organization. And the top of that pyramid is your employee assist program, your professional psychologist, psychiatrist that the hospital have and are required to have to support their employees. But there is this gap in the middle where the surgery-specific support is missing. And I think that's the conceptual framework. This is where you place your organization, your, uh, your, your program. And to to prevent it from being discovered by or, or used by by lawsuits, if you want, we place the program under QA. Now, what does that mean? So, organizationally, in the hospital, the peer support program is under QA, which gives it a theoretical protection, uh, peer peer review protection, if you want. 
Um, does that really give it protection? I do not know. I don't know. I don't know if that really give it protection. But I can tell you, in six years of the program, I I am not aware of a single subpoena that we received related to the peer supporter needs to come to court and talk and say what happened in those discussions. And the third thing is, I don't. We don't allow notes to be taken. We have no documentation except of the intervention happening and the names of who was in the intervention and also the the general month that this happened to, to, uh, into, but no specific details of the discussions that happened. So that's the, the first step. The second one is how do you choose your peer supporter? And the way we did it is, you know, we, we went to the surgeons and the residents. I said, we said, who do you go to? When you ha- when you need such a support, and and we made them kind of vote for their top two or three people, and names floated to the surface naturally, and those were the peer supporters. And we sent an email. We said, "Congratulations, you've been named by your peers as the go-to people." And then the third step was, how do we train them? That's probably the most complicated part. Where if you don't have a program, it's good to lean on people who've done it for a while. So for our first training. We did have, you know, tr- experts come from other fields to help us. And since then, I helped and many others have helped other programs establish their their their, their peer support program. The fourth one was how do I identify the major adverse events? And again, that turned out to be the most useless exercise because the word of mouth is what works in the end. And the fifth one is what is the actual intervention? After you train your peers to do it, like what is the actual intervention? And in a very, very brief description, there's an email that will go to that person, tell them, we, we, you know, we know you need support. We're sending you such and such person to support you in it. And here are some resources for you to look at. And usually that person is matched based, based on the field, like a cardiac surgeon supporting a transplant surgeon, maybe a breast surgeon supporting an endocrine surgeon. The, the hierarchy is taken into consideration. And uh, and and also the 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 level of expertise, if you want. And then, how do they do it? They that peer supporter will reach out, take them for coffee, uh, talk with them, and they might do multiple inter, you know, multiple times get together until they make sure they're moving in the right direction. So hopefully that gives a little bit of a flavor of how the program works. No, it absolutely does. And I just as you describe it, I think about how wonderful that that would be to have that. You know, you, you can't feel worse. Than when you have a complication and then to have someone formally looking after you like this, it's just a super powerful thing. Do you have uh, an example or can you, or whether it's, it's real or, or made up a, a specific example of a complication and maybe how someone worked through that program. And then ideally how, when we talk about these stages, they came out on the other side you know, not no. Hopefully, better for it to some degree, right? Learning from it and having felt supported. Yeah, I mean, for, for obvious reasons, I, I can't share specific cases, mm-hmm. but I can, uh, I can create analogies of fictitious cases, but are based on some realities. But imagine you're an experienced surgeon, and you've you have twenty twenty five years of experience in doing a certain procedure. And as you're doing that procedure, there's a major vascular injury that happens. You try, you, 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 you convert from laparoscopic to open. You try to control the bleeding. It's a venous bleeding, major structure. One thing leads to the other in the middle of anesthesia trying to catch up, patient codes. Then next thing you know, the chest is being open to stop the bleeding. Next thing you know, we're trying to go on ECMO, patient dies on the table. Hmm. these are again i changed some of the details of the cases but this is the kind of stuff elective case of somebody coming with an elective case and not making it to through the operating room um despite decades of experience of that surgeon at that moment in time they were ready to quit and i i mean it and i was there and i they were ready to quit. That's it. That's the end. They don't need it. It's too much guilt on their shoulders. They don't need to do it towards the end of their career. That's. And then we, you know, they said, I don't need any peer support. I don't need any of that. And then 
we persisted, we helped them through it, and we saw them slowly come around. And then they had multiple intervention at some point. You know, we refer them to higher level of care if we th- think this is not going in the right direction. And uh, and you know, a month two later, they're back and they're doing okay and they're operating. And uh, they sometimes, if if they mature enough into it, you know, after the peer supporters help them through the six stages that that you mentioned, uh, you can find them become advocates for safety, how to prevent such errors from happening in the future. And what percentage of, or rough percentage perhaps, of cases that come through require professional support in terms of you know, psychiatric assistance or other counseling? Probably five to ten percent, and that's that's a wild guess. Yeah, and it's it's typically the way it happens. I, you know, the first intervention, somebody goes, they're lost in their thoughts. I, I, and we kind of part of the training. You train the peer supporters to not play psychologists or psychiatrists if they identify some flags of not necessarily suicidality, but really black thoughts. Um, that's when they would ring the alarm, and they would we would elevate, and we have a good relationship with the employee assist program, and then th- they get a formal psychiatrist helping them. I was really happy to hear earlier that in the program that you guys have developed, you also include the residents. Is there anything though that you do differently or anything that's offered differently to the residents specifically? And also, how do you sort of, I know we often operate as big teams. There's a chief resident, but there's usually also like a ton of junior residents below me. So how do you make sure that they're also included? Yeah, the really good questions. I I do think um, helping residents there's a couple of important things to keep in mind. The first one is part of the peer supporter, if you want, cadre that we created. There was residents and residents at different levels of training. Um, and typically, we send residents or trainees. Let me let me be specific. Trainees to support trainees. I think a chief resident uh, and a fellow can help each other. A junior resident and a senior resident that might work. Junior residents helps a junior resident that works. Because I do think um, there is a peculiarity to doing it while you're in training uh, that are important to take into consideration when you're helping. And, and that model has worked very well. The other thing to keep in mind is the things I would intervene or we would intervene in, in the program for residents and attendings might be different. The impact of the same adverse event on the resident and the attending might be different. Yeah. Um, so the years of experience will matter. The um, If you're a resident and you're doing your part of the procedure and your part is the one that gets complicated, that's a very different field than if you are the one retracting at the point the injury happened. Um, so... If if they were attracting, then the, the impact of that injury on the attending might be much more severe than on the resident. In other areas, the resident, you know, causes an adverse event. The attending jumps to help. That attending might not need the help as much. Um, so those, if you take those two things into consideration, um, you you can see how the the kind of events we we would intervene on for residents or attendings are different. Um, in major cases and major complications that we've seen, it is not uncommon to send two or three peer supporters to two or three different people. Um, and, and we routinely do that. It's actually, I would say, more than 50% it'll be both intervening on the trainee as well as the attending. But there are situations where we intervene on either or. So surgical culture definitely requires a degree of excellence and accountability. I think we all agree that's a good thing, but that also creates a certain culture and, and maybe in some environments, a culture of, of blame, perhaps. And so how does this, you have this very nuanced understanding of second victim syndrome. How does that square with the forum we think about the most, which is morbidity mortality conferences, which... Granted, have also continued to evolve over time as we think about these types of uh, issues and, and others. Uh, this is an excellent question. 
really, really good question, and I have very strong feelings about it. So um, I am a safety and quality enthusiast, if you want. And and this question often or this discussion often comes up, you know, well, how do we make sure like, you know, we're keeping the balance of accountability and the balance of quality improvement at the same time while supporting our colleagues. So here is my strong thought about it. Not only I don't think the two are not opposed to each other, I actually think they complement each other. I think they're synergistic to a certain extent. And and then I'll come back to the blame point, which is really important. This is why. The worst thing you could do to a surgeon when their M&M is getting presented, when they know it's a major failure, if you want, is for everybody to just nod their heads and say, yeah, things happen. That's the worst thing for the healing of that surgeon because then they know that Everybody knows it's bad, but nobody wants to, if you want. Um, uh, uh, that's maximum shame. Yes, that's maximum shame. That's exactly right. And actually, a healthy m and I'll come back to the word healthy in a minute. A healthy m and is a is a cornerstone in the healing journey of the surgeon that is the second victim. A healthy m M&M that points exactly the failure of processes, the gaps, if you want, in the gym reason or the Swiss cheese model, like mm-hmm. what things in your cogn- cognition and what things in your techniques led to this error happening, that discussion is therapeutic. Now, to go back to the healthy and the blame component, I do think, you know, I, I, I'm resisting the urge to say when, when I was a resident, but there is we are in a much better shape than we used to be 20 or 30 years ago in M&Ms and in training. M&M could be strong, could hit at the root cause without getting personal. And that's the key component. And I think, unfortunately, there's in the old culture of doing M&M, the old culture of surgery, we immediately jumped to the personal component. Where and, and any mistake that happens becomes an attack on character, an attack on competence, an attack on, and that's the stuff we need to avoid in MM. Now, it doesn't mean if you have recurrent situations or where competence is in question, it doesn't mean there is no other processes within the department organization that can be activated, but MM is not the right place for it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't point out what went wrong. And and I do think it's important for the healing. And and I know that at, at, at MGH, our internal joke is that it's 200 years of tradition unimpeded by medical progress. So <laughs> our M&M is brutal, but, and it's still brutal. And what I mean by brutal is we go to the root cause. We don't play around the topic. But at the same time, the difference now with the peer support is at the end of M&M, there's at least two or three people giving me logs or giving some other peer supporters logs, like make sure you reach out offline to that person and make sure they're okay. They seem a little bit shaken by what happened. Well, this has been an absolutely amazing discussion and I feel so bad that we're getting close to the end of our time, but is there anything, especially in these last few minutes, you know, someone who's listening to this, who's like, I agree wholeheartedly. This is a huge issue, especially at my institution. What are some lessons or some things that they can take away to maybe help address this at their own institution that you you would want to offer them or recommend? Yeah, I uh, I do want to tackle a, an angle of the peer support program in the current environment across the country and what it is and what it's not. Um, we all recognize the moral injury that a lot of nurses, physicians, and surgeons have across the country with the pandemic and what happened after it. So the topic of wellness has emerged as a very strong topic and i think it's a correct way to do it the peer support program we did way before people were talking about wellness but if this is not about the wellness of surgeons i don't know what it is and the point i want to try to make is for people in charge of ensuring the wellness of healthcare workers including surgeons is you cannot and i'm sorry i hope this doesn't offend anybody we cannot yoga our way out of the you know the moral injuries that we have we it's not amen it's not another cookie it's not another you are a hero 
T-shirt. It's not a pizza and it's not another cycle uh, cycling lesson in the middle of the day that none of us can make it to it. We got to tackle a little bit the, the underlying problem of the moral injury. Um, and I think dealing with the miseries that we see, whether whether we were part of, you know, we failed ourselves in terms of injuries happen to the patients or just the catastrophic things that we end up seeing as surgeons uh, dealing with the underlying component of it is important, dealing with the administrative burden, dealing with a lot of the things that prevent us from connecting with patients. All of these are underlying what's going on. And I just encourage everybody who's involved in wellness to really tackle the issue at its core, which is what we mentioned, and not just be, stay at the surface and think, we, you know, surgeons need to be more resilient. I do not know any group of people who is more resilient than surgeons. So let's not talk about resilience. I think it's going to offend some people. And I'm sorry. No, I, I, I can't agree more. I think, that, I think it'll offend no one, frankly. That is, that is the truth. Really, when you think about wellness, this cuts to the core of being well as a surgeon. Complications happen to everyone. And to be able to address it and learn from it and grow from it is extraordinarily important. So a program like yours, it starts to do that. So it, it's amazing for us to hear you know, all about that. And uh, we appreciate you you coming on and commend you for your work. And again, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much. I'm a big fan of uh, Behind the Knife and I'm honored to be with you. What an amazing conversation. I awesome. took away so much from that. I, I really identified when he was talking about why surgeons are so unique in their experience of the second victim syndrome and that we are in the position to actively cause harm to our patients every single day in the operating room. That isn't to say other specialties don't maybe experience something similar, but just the being in the operating room and knowing that you can actively do something to harm a patient, I think really does put surgeons in this unique position and and at a higher risk of experiencing second victim syndrome. So I, I really appreciated that and identified with it. Yeah, laying your hands on someone, healing with steel, that's a that's a whole nother level of trust that you develop with the patient. Uh they're trusting you to they're trusting you with their bodies, they're trusting you with their their health and their lives in some circumstances. And so that is that's major. He also mentioned a, a paper, the surgeon as a second victim, results of the Boston Intraoperative Adverse Events Attitude Study, B, the BISA study, BISA. We're gonna include that in the show notes. That was really interesting because that was kind of the impetus for a lot of this. A few of the key findings, over 84% of respondents reported a combination of anxiety, guilt, sadness, shame, uh, and or anger. And then it, uh, we mentioned this earlier, but it didn't matter if they were senior surgeons or if they were junior surgeons. And that these, these surgeons found that the best source of support for them were their colleagues not necessarily friends, family, or even professional uh, uh, counselors, but their colleagues. And we talked about how surgeons, they understand. They understand each other well and are particularly well-suited uh, to offer that type of support. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I tell people all the time, you know, we're a seven-resident program, and I that there are only six other people in the entire world who know exactly what I'm going through. And, right. and it makes perfect sense that, you know, your colleagues are the, the ones that are going to understand these complications and these feelings the best. I especially liked how he mentioned, you know, how thoughtful he is when they're matching people with peer supporters. You know, he mentioned, you know, he'll match a cardiac surgeon with a trauma surgeon or a, a breast surgeon with an endocrine surgeon, because even within our, our specialty of surgery, how we sort of, you know, we get into your subspecialties, there are even uniquenesses amongst subspecialties as well, and how you sort of experience complications or poor outcomes. And that thoughtfulness and how you sort of even assign those, I think, is is an important component to his program and probably why it's been so well received. Just about three years out from fellowship now and in looking back at, at you know training, there's a big difference when you become the staff. I think as a resident, you always have someone there. You always have your attending, right, who who has mm -hmm. ownership of the patient. And it really hurts as a trainee when something goes wrong. Yeah. I think it hurts worse when you're the attending. And a lot of that comes from that trust uh, that you in, uh, develop with that patient. When they are looking to you as the surgeon and say, I trust you, doc, go, you know, do your thing. And I know you're going to do great. And, and bad things can and, and do happen. 
And man, does it really hurt. And so that's why I think that listening to Dr. Kafrani describe this program, it's something that's simple, but so powerful. And, and we, will, we will include that paper about the stages of almost like the stages of grief. You can learn, you can, there's silver line, you learn from each of these things. And if you have the opportunity to have a support system uh, with excellent partners and folks around you, excellent colleagues, you know, co-residents, et cetera, if you're that lucky, then you can come out uh, better for it and a better surgeon. So uh, I think that's it. You got any other closing comments, Jessica? Are we done waxing? No. Poetic? We could probably talk for months about yeah. this, but I think that's probably where we'll leave it for today. Awesome. Well, again, thanks everyone for listening. And please, if you like what you hear, don't ever be shy about leaving us a review. We do like that a lot. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.